Welcome to the Grace Hill Podcast, a weekly podcast of our Sunday messages driven by our pastor. Grace Hill exists to bring God's biblical truth to your everyday life. As we begin this week's message, we invite you to open your Bibles and capture what God has in store for you today. So last week we started this series, and it was a lot of fun just talking about the very first statement that we find Jesus saying from the cross, and it's that, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And we talked about how forgiveness was, was, was prayed for for all people, right? There was not one group of people that Jesus was praying for, but he was praying for every single person. And, and what we find is that is a fulfillment of prophecy found in Isaiah where it says that, that he inter- was interceding on the behalf of, of the transgressors, right? So even from the moment Jesus is on the cross, he begins interceding for us in that moment and for our forgiveness so that when we go to the Father and we ask then for forgiveness, it has already been granted. It is waiting for us to then in turn ask for it. And he's, it's there. And then the second thing we talked about was, was we don't understand the depth and the magnitude of our sin. He says, forgive them for they don't know what they are doing. He says, truly they don't understand the magnitude of the, of, of the, the sin that they're walking in. And I made the statement that nobody fully understands the sinfulness of sin. And then we talked about how great uh, it is that we then in turn can turn to the Father and receive forgiveness and that his grace and his love are poured out, amen? That in, in the depths of our sin and the, the worst parts of our sin, there is forgiveness. No matter how far we feel we've ran, no matter how far we've pulled away, there is forgiveness. That when Jesus made the prayer, he prayed it for all people. So today, uh, we're going to talk about when Jesus says today, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. So let's set the scene kind of like we did last week. So here we have Jesus hanging on the cross and the day before he was beaten within an inch of his life. And we, we said last week that, that the reason they did 39 lashes was because they believed that 40 lashes would kill a man. And so here he is hanging on to life, literally, and then hanging on the cross, having received the 39 lashes the day before his body is weak. It is brittle. It is frail. And he is hung on the cross. Now scientists have studied and tried to figure out exactly what is it that caused the death on the cross? Was it bleeding out? Was it, was it, was it just fatigue and whatever? And they've, they've come to the conclusion that more often than not, not always, but most often, it would have been death caused by asphyxia because of fatigue, because of exhaustion. And what we find is that because the arms are stretched out, they are holding the body that the chest muscles and the lungs would experience hyperexpansion. And so as it's pulling and the weight of the body is pulling down and it's pulling this way, that there is so much stress caused across the chest and the lungs that to, receive, to take a breath, they can't just simply breathe in because of the weight of it all. They have to pull themselves up, take in their breath, and then fall back down. And this causes rapid exhaustion. And once the body has reached complete exhaustion in this state, that, that death is just minutes behind. And we find Jesus who is grasping for breath and clinging to life and hanging on the cross, barely able to breathe in for himself, still found it necessary to utter words in this position. 
And we'll read today about two other men who were hanging next to him. And, and keep in mind, their ability to speak is probably a little easier because while they're experiencing the pain of the nails in their hands and feet, they did not endure the beating Jesus went through the day before. Because remember, that was not a customary process in crucifixion. That was simply an attempt to appease the people so that Pilate didn't have to send him to the cross. So here's Jesus clinging to life, hanging on but with, with every single breath that he gives and finds it necessary to utter words that we're going to walk through and continue to learn from. But today we want to look at what he says to the man on the cross next to him. And we find it here in, in Luke 23, starting in verse 39. It says, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. He said, don't you fear God? He said, since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. You will be with me in paradise. With what limited breath he had in his lungs, with what little life he had left, he uttered words of salvation. He uttered a promise to a man who was hanging on a cross next to him and said, remember me, remember me. He says, don't you know, don't you fear God? Don't you realize who this man is? and his recognition of Jesus as the Messiah, and he says, remember me. The thought today, the big idea today would be this, that Jesus came to save sinners. Jesus came to save sinners. I know it's not this deep, crazy, profound thought, but at the end of it all, it boils down to that simple message that Jesus came to save sinners. All of us. Every one of us born into sin, walking in sin, living in sin. Every one of us in need of a savior. Jesus came to save sinners. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I pray, God, that you anoint my words, that you anoint my lips to speak what you would have me to say as we take a moment to examine and reflect on what you said from the cross, I pray, God, that it penetrates deep into our hearts and into our souls, Father, that it causes life change and life transformation today. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, amen. The first thing is this. Jesus gave his life for all people. He gave his life for all people. If you look at the ministry of Jesus, you'll find that he spent the majority of his time with the worst of the worst, what, what, the, what the, the, the culture of the time would consider sinners, outcasts, you know, and, and reprobates, like these people that were just terrible, right? They would go, those are not good people. You shouldn't associate with those people. You should probably find new friends, right? And, and, and we have some of those words kind of stated to Jesus going, why are you with him? And we'll look at some of this today. Spurgeon says it this way, that, that, that his, his last companion on earth was a sinner, and yet his first companion at the gates of heaven was that same man who's saved by grace. 
How cool of a thought is that? That Jesus' entire ministry was spent reaching out to the outcast, into the worst of the worst, these people that were deemed by society as bad people, right? Society looked at them and said, man, y'all are terrible sinners. You're awful people. We want nothing to do with you because we are holy. We are a righteous people. Therefore, you are beneath me, right? And who does Jesus hang out with and who does Jesus choose to be with but those very people? And I think it's the coolest thing that you see Jesus at the end of his life hanging on the cross. Who is he hanging out with? But again, the worst of the worst, the lowest of the lows. And his first companion at the gates of heaven, when they wake up in eternity, he's there with that same man who said, remember me. Jesus died for all people. There was no prototypical person or, 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 or specific type that Jesus said, that is who I'm, you know, I, I want that person, I want that person. You know, no, he came for all men and all women. He came for all people. He gave his life for all people. And I think it's, it's interesting as we, as we look at the life of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus, we find that, that constantly he is around people that, that would be deemed as sinners and as the worst of the worst. Let's start with looking at Zacchaeus. Now, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. And a wee little man was he. Yeah. He climbed up on a sycamore tree to see what he could see. See, see. We'll move on from there. But we read about Zacchaeus in Luke 19, right? And, and we hear the story of, of, of a man who's this tax collector. And yes, he is a short person. And so he has to climb up in a tree to be able to look over, to be able to find out what's going on. And we see that, that Zacchaeus is, is intrigued by Jesus, right? And here's what you'll find out about tax collectors in that time era, in that time period. Now, right now, I would say, you know, if you're like an auditor for the IRS, we love you this time of year. This is the time of year where we want you to be our best friends, right? But, but if you go back and you look at it historically and you find tax collectors in this time, they would have been known as crooked thieves because they would overtax and then tax on top of that and they would keep for themselves what was not required by the government. And here's where it gets even crazier is that we find that Zacchaeus is probably a Jewish man working for the Roman government. So not only is he a crooked tax collector, but he is probably also viewed as a traitor. And they go, look at you, you're one of us, and yet you steal from us. And here's this person that would be looked down upon, and the only friends he would have would be those who would want to be close to his money, right? And Jesus goes to him, and, and he says to him, he says, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. Come down immediately. I must stay at your house. He's like, today I'm going to stay at your house. I need you to come down from that tree right now. Now, the, the, the right thing that, the good thing that Zacchaeus did was, was he was obedient to Jesus in that moment, right? There was that recognition and that understanding. And he goes to his house and, and all, all the people, all the Pharisees, everybody's in an uproar, right? Because here's Jesus hanging out with, with this, this sinner. And, and he says this, and this is what Jesus says to Zacchaeus after his moment of, of kind of repentance. And he says, I will give everything back. And if I've taken more than I should, I will pay it back four times, right? And he's going to give it all over. And he's like, forgive me, forgive me. And Jesus says this in Luke 19, 9. He says, Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus making the statement, my purpose for being here today is to seek and to save the lost. 
not to leave them out there on their own and not to just with, you know, pull in the righteous to me and be near me and around me. But no, he says, I have come to seek and to save the lost. And that, that is why we, we, we think of him as the good shepherd, right? He goes out to find the lost sheep. He'll leave the 99 to find the one to bring it back into the fold, back into the flock, you know? And he says, I have come to seek and to save the lost. As we keep looking, we can look at the woman at, at, at the well that we find the, the, the Samaritan woman. And, and, and we find this woman who, who has had relationship problem after relationship problem, right? She's got more baggage than DFW, you know, one of those kind of stories, right? She is, she's a mess, right? She's been married five times and she's living with a man who's not her husband. And, and so she goes and she changes her schedule to go and collect water when other women won't be there. So she goes at the worst time of day, the hottest time of day, she goes to collect her water because she does not want to to endure the stares or hear the whispers of the words of the other women. She is is just riddled with shame, right? She is this broken, hurting woman. And the Bible tells us this. So the thing we have to know about about the the Jews and Samaritans is that they did not want to mix. It was a very, uh, 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 for lack of a better term, a very uh, racist mentality that the Jews had towards the Samaritans. It was a terrible thing, right? And so you would find that the Jews intentionally would take the longest way around to go from Judea up to Galilee, to go around. They would go on the other side of the river heading north through another area altogether rather than taking the shortest route. And it says this, this is what's so cool. It says in John chapter four, it says, now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. And then verse four is this, is now he had to go through Samaria. That is a profound statement. Because there's no logical explanation. Right? There's no reason as to why, as a Jew, as, a, as an upstanding citizen, that he would feel the need to go through Samaria because all the other disciples would be like, what are you doing? Why, why are we going this way? We never go that way. We never pass through there. What are you doing? And Jesus said, I have to go through Samaria. So because Jesus died for all people. He died for all people. There was no one person that he deemed as, as less than salvation, right? That he deemed as too low for saving. There was no one person that he looked at and said, nope, it's not for you. I'm so sorry. This is not how it works. No, he says, I died for all people. And then in, in 422 through 26, it says, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. It's a reference to himself, right? Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and the worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. And the woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. So here's this woman who is aware that the Messiah is coming. And she sees this and she's like, I, I've had so many issues and, and, and you know all of my problems. You've told me everything. Who are you? And Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. He didn't withhold his identity from her. He reveals himself to her. And time and time and time again throughout scripture, we find that Jesus tries to conceal his identity, right? He tries to tell them, don't tell them who I am yet. It is not time, it's not time. And yet this woman he says, I am the Messiah. You see, Jesus died for all people. He died for all people. 
One last thing. So Jesus didn't just die for them. He, he loves all people. In Luke 5, we see Jesus calling Matthew to be one of his disciples. And Matthew, also called Levi, was also a tax collector. And we've already gone over tax collectors and, and how they were viewed in society and the kind of people they were and, and the things that they did. And so we see Jesus calling his, his disciples. And he, I love that he's just walking by and he sees Levi, the tax collector, and he just says to him, hey, come and follow me. And immediately, it says, immediately, Matthew just says, Okay. And I go, wow, what what incredible faith. First of all, this is remarkable obedience. He just says, okay. And he gets up and so he goes and says, I'll follow you. But he says, I'm going to throw you a banquet tonight. And so Matthew, Levi, throws this this huge banquet and the Pharisees come and they're looking in and they go, oh, what kind of person are you? What kind of person are you that you would come and eat and drink with, with tax collectors and sinners? Right? I just love that he just classified them as like, ah. There's tax collectors and there's sinners, right? As if tax collectors were just even worse. Like, it's bad enough you hang out with sinners, but tax collectors? Ugh. Right? And Jesus makes one of the greatest statements that I think he's, I mean, all of his words are great, but hear me. He says, it is not the healthy, but the sick who need a doctor. Right? Yep. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinner to repentance. I've not come to call the righteous, but the sinner to repentance. Jesus died for all people. And we have to grasp that. We have to understand that, that, that there was not a single person that he was withholding salvation from. It doesn't matter if, if the worst sin you've committed was a little white lie or, or whatever it may be, or if you would say, you don't even want to know the things that I've done with my life. You don't even want to know the sins I've committed. It does not matter. Jesus died for you and for me and all of those in between. It doesn't matter. He died for everyone. And when he says to the man on the cross next to him, he says, truly I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. You will be with me in paradise. He says, I've come for anyone who will have me. I've come for anyone who will accept me, for anyone who will acknowledge me as Christ, anyone who will acknowledge me as Messiah, as Lord. I have come to give them salvation. He said, I want to see the, the sinners repent. I want to see their lives change and transform. The second thing is this, is that, that salvation is immediate. He says, today, you will be with me in paradise. In this moment, you know, after you're done, this is it. You've done it. You've, you've made the prayer. You've stated what you needed to be stated. We've done this. And yes, today, you will be with me in paradise. Here's what's so great about that is that it doesn't mean that there is this, this timeline in, in which you have to, to wait it out. There's not this waiting period where Jesus is going, okay, there's a, a 72-hour waiting period. Uh, and if within that time, you prove to me that you meant what you said, we will uh, start the application process, Right? No, 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 no. There's, it, it is an immediate justification. It is an immediate moment. I, heard, I read the statement this past week that when we think about being justified, right? It's as if we are, it's just as if I'd never sinned, right? So justified. And it is like a point in time. So this person said, think about it as a specific single point on a timeline where you go, boom, that's the moment right there. This is when justification happened, right? And then there's that ongoing process of sanctification. We're not getting into all of that today, but just understanding that it is immediate, It is in that very moment when we acknowledge our sin and our need of a savior and we repent and we say, Jesus, forgive me. I need you, Father. And he says, done. That's the coolest thing in the world to me. 
the sinner who's hanging on the cross next to Jesus, he doesn't have any other timeline. He's got nowhere else to be. He's not headed anywhere else in, in, in the rest of his life. And all he has left is from that moment forward is eternity. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. It's an immediate moment. It happens in an instant. It happens exactly in that moment. This is really good news for us, right? This is great news for us. If there's not some time period or waiting period where we have to go through this process, whatever, no. And it's actually really remarkable when you think about the culture we live in and the world we live in for everybody, everybody wants everything now. And if you look at my generation, and, and, and I'll, I'll pick on my generation because I feel safer doing that than on other generations, right? I'll pick on my generation. If you look at our average debt for somebody between the ages of 25 and 34, and yes, I do fall into that category, all right? For a few more months. For a few more months. So 25 to 34, the average person's debt load is $42,000. And some of you are going, whoa. And you go, well, school debt. The worst part of that is, is that credit card debt is the majority of that. It's a generation that wants things now. There's no desire to work for it. There's no desire to earn it. There's no desire to save up and to have it, right? Which makes me go, God, in your infinite wisdom, you knew that people would want things immediately. And he's saying, I have salvation for you immediately. Even the moment you say it, it's done. The moment that it's prayed, grace is given. The moment that it's prayed, you are washed clean. You are washed by the blood of Jesus and you are made right in in standing with Christ. It's immediate. It is not this waiting list or this hope to get in, right? I've put my name in to go to the masters for years now and I've been on the waiting list and odds are I'm never gonna get in, right? Somehow these random people, they get selected and they get to go to Augusta and they get to go to the masters and it's awesome. It's great for them. I've been on the waiting list for years. I'm probably never gonna get selected to get tickets to go to this stinking thing. And when it does happen, I probably won't be able to afford it. And I'll be like, man, seriously? I guess I'll put it on the credit card. I'm just kidding. That's a joke. It was all set up for that moment right there. No. So the reality is, is that it's immediate. It's, it's not this waiting period in which that we have to walk through to get to. No, it is an immediate moment of salvation. Here's the other thing that we love and that we see is this, that it's not earned by good works. Along that same line, it's not earned by good works. Think about the man on the cross. What could he do? Maybe utter some kind words with what breath he had left. But no, there was no ability for Jesus to say, okay, listen, uh, you've got to prove to me now that, that you're, you, you have earned your salvation. You have to prove to me now that you have worked out your salvation, right? That you have, you're, you've got fruit of grace, that there's fruit of forgiveness. Because I need you to come off this cross. I'm going to let you down, right? Angels, come, come, come. Let him off this cross. He needs to go and walk it out and live it out for all to see. No, that's not what this is. See, grace is given to us by faith not by the works in which we've done. Now I'll teach for just a small moment, right? Justification happens in an instance. Now there is the fruit of our salvation, right? So we have fruit of the spirit, but the way we live also speaks to the salvation we've received. So there is a call for holiness and for righteousness. Understand that, understand that clearly, that that it's not about you receive grace and you walk out and you live how you want and do what you want and you say, oh, that's great. Bonhoeffer calls that, I'm sorry, I'm throwing out a theologian. He's a German guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He calls that cheap grace. He says, don't weaken the grace you've been given. Don't walk in cheap grace. Live out the life in which you've done. So that, that's my teaching moment for the moment on that. Just that, that yes, we, we don't earn our salvation. No, but we live out our faith in the way we live and the way we walk. We are called to a life of holiness and righteousness. Amen? 
Amen, everybody. Everybody, amen. We are all on the same page here. Please, thank you. Right? No, I'm just kidding. But we can't earn it. The man on the cross couldn't get off, you know, couldn't come down and, and, and help a sweet lady across the street, right? He wasn't going to come down off the cross and start leading a small group in his home. It wasn't, it, that, there's no earning it in that moment. It was Jesus spoke it by his faith. He received the grace that was given. And in that moment, he was justified. He said, today you will be with me in paradise. Today, not tomorrow, not, well, once you get out of purgatory and all this kind of work. No, 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 there's none of that. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. The moment he dies, the moment he wakes up, he's in eternity with Jesus. Think about this. He woke up that morning, a criminal and a murderer. The word used there, it it signifies that it was probably a, a robbery with a murder involved, right? For both of those men hanging next to him. So he woke up that morning a murderer, hung on the cross as a sinner, humbled himself to repentance and woke up redeemed in eternity. He didn't earn it. It was the man on the cross next to him earning it for him. And he says, look at this. We're hanging here because of what we've done. We are earning our penalty right now. He's done nothing wrong. He said, don't you fear God? He says, remember me. He says, you got it. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. It's remarkable. It's incredible that when you stop and you think about the grace that's given in an instant, in a moment, that it just comes and that it was nothing we've done to earn it. In fact, we've done everything we can, everything in our own ability to push it away, right? In our natural desires, we push it away. In the moment we humble ourselves and we repent, and Jesus says, I've been waiting for you. Here it is. Here it is. The third thing is this today. Paradise is our future. If there's nothing to be saved from, then what is the need for salvation? If there's nothing to be saved from, then what is our need for salvation? And I think we have to work out in our minds and our understanding that, that, that heaven and hell are both very real places. And I know people that are, have fallen into the idea of what the, the theological term would be annihilationism which basically means this, that there is no hell, but just it is a a eternal death. It's like a final death and it's over, right? And if that's the case, then to me, it doesn't sound like there's a whole lot to fear or be worried about. But if that's the case, then, then, then what is the point in needing salvation? We can live our life how we want without any fear of eternal judgment or eternal uh, torment in hell, right? Then what is the need for salvation, Now, whatever you want to call hell, and we can discuss hell at some point in time, but I know this for a fact that it is separation from God. It is eternal separation from God. And you are not in a place in relationship and in closeness to the Father, but we say on the flip side that Jesus says, you'll be with me in paradise. In paradise. Now, that sounds like a place where I want to be, right? Right? When Lauren and I first got married, we went on our honeymoon, and, and my grandfather was gracious enough to send us to this awesome, awesome resort down in Mexico. And it seemed like paradise, especially as young as we were. There was no way we would have ever been able to afford to get there, right? Lauren being a teenager and all, and I was, I was not much further ahead at the time, right? And so we didn't have... 
It makes it sound like she was 12 or 13. She was, she was almost 19. She was almost 19, and I was all of 22. So we were just, you know, just really smart and knew that it was right to get married at the time and just had it, had it all figured out, right? We like to say we grew up together because we were so young. Like, <laughs> we grew up together. Um, and uh, we got to go on this awesome, awesome honeymoon, and we went to this place called El Dorado Royale, and it is cool. And, like, they don't claim to be all-inclusive, they are gourmet inclusive. And I was like, whoa, we're bougie, right? Um, that's just kind of how it felt. I've never been able to throw the word bougie into a sermon before. That's like the first time, I think. Yeah, right. Just make note of that moving forward. Just have a running tally from now on. No, but we get there, and this place has like 11 gourmet restaurants on, on the, the property. And you just like, you just show up and you eat. And then you go, man, I want to go try another restaurant. And so you do. And you just go to another one. And it was like paradise, right? We had all the food we could eat. We had an awesome beach. And it was just, you know, it was perfect. The weather was amazing, like everything. And we go, wow. And so we go, you know, you, you try to compare that to, is this what heaven's going to be like? And you go, man, it doesn't even compare. It doesn't even compare. When we look at the word paradise, and, and we had to do some sort of Greek study and all of this, right? Uh, the word paradise, essentially, it, it is the Greek word uh, paradisos which is where we get our word paradise from. Uh, it's simple translation would be God's garden. That's the simple translation. That's just the, the surface level understanding of the word. But when you do historical studies on the word, it, you realize that it has deeper rooted meaning than just God's garden. And there's a greater understanding in this. And what we find is that it, it goes back even to the Old Testament understanding in the Septuagint. So the Septuagint would be the Old Testament writings in Greek. So they took the Hebrew and then the, the Jews that were Greek-speaking Jews translated it into the Septuagint, okay, which is in Greek. So track with me for just a moment. And if I'm getting like too Bible nerd on you guys, I apologize. Uh, we'll just roll with it. Uh, so the word was used to mean garden, right? Like it was the word for, for garden, but it continued to evolve as a word. Here's the thing that we've, we found is that it did not stay just meaning in garden. So historically, you know, culturally, you know how culture can, can play on words, right? To mean different things. You take, take one word from our culture and you put it in, into the British culture, it can mean something different, right? Like they play football, we play soccer, that kind of thing, right? And they don't wear cleats, they wear boots. And if you're from Texas, you go, you're an idiot. You don't know what boots are. I'll show you a boot, man. Here you go, right? So what we find is that this word over time culturally has shifted in its meaning, right? And what it is. And so uh, we find essentially uh, by time it gets to the the writings that we have in the New Testament, it would mean this, that it was the garden of the king where death and evil are not allowed. Only the righteous can come in. And so when he makes this statement, so the, the, the Persian world that the word comes from, the word originates from a Persian word, and it would be like a walled garden for the kings. So it would be the place where only the king was allowed to be. It would be his garden. And Jesus says to the man, understanding in context the word that he's using, you will be with me today in paradise. And so when we have that word, he means you will be with me in, in, in God's garden. You will be with me in this place where evil and death do, do not exist and only the righteous can come in. See, we are made righteous in salvation, right? We take on the righteousness of Christ. It's this beautiful, beautiful thing. But as you look at that word, it's used a few times in the Old Testament. And, and, and in that, you find that the Garden of Eden, the, the garden you find in Genesis chapter two, is referred to as paradise. 
this word particularly would be the idea of, of paradise. And we find in Revelations, it's only used three times in the New Testament. And in Revelation, we read about where the tree of life is. And it says it rests in paradise. It's the same word that Jesus is speaking to in, in, in advance. He's saying, you're going to be with me there where the tree of life is. In this incredible utopia of heaven that we call it now. It's this remarkable thing. And so understanding that, that if there's a need for salvation, what are we being saved from? What is it that, that, that we are, are being pulled from? And it's the reality that hell is a real place, that, that separation from God can be eternal if we don't secure our soul here on earth. And so when the man says to Jesus, remember me, remember me, and Jesus says, truly, I tell you. I love that he says, truly. That means believe me. Hear me, know that this is a promise I make to you. Today you will be with me in paradise. Today you will be with me in paradise. So what do we do with that? Where do we go from here? We, we have to understand that, that that means that there is, there is something that we know, there is something that, that we have that needs to be shared. Amen. To me, I read this when I read about salvation and I'm in, in a church setting and we'll take a moment just to give people the opportunity to accept Christ in case you have not done so already. But I know that typically in a church setting, this isn't where we're gonna find you know, the most sinners and the people that are lost most often, right? The reality is it's where it occurs most often in our culture and in the way things work in the church culture in America. But that means there's more people outside of the walls of this church that need Jesus then there are people in this room, amen? In the neighborhood of Lake Highlands, there's almost 90,000 people. Almost 90,000 people just in our neighborhood. Y'all realize that? Coming from Midlothian, where there's only like 30,000 people, that's a little bit shocking. You go, my neighborhood is three times the size of the town I came from. But the understanding that there are people that need Jesus, and it's a, it's a large majority of the people that need Jesus. In Dallas, there's over 1.4 million people right now and the large majority need Jesus. There's a, a, a comedic magician duo called Penn and Teller. A lot of y'all have heard of Penn and Teller. And, and, and they're, they're very funny and they're remarkable. They're really, really good. Uh, but they're, kind of their thing is that one of them speaks and the other one never says a word. He just makes very funny expressions and, and, and may in fact be like the mastermind behind the magic and a lot of the things that they do in, in the sleight of hand and stuff. And they're, they're very, very entertaining um, and, and, and a lot of fun to watch and they do some neat stuff. I watched one one time where they're doing this whole deal where, where Teller, who's the one that doesn't speak, gets into this tank of water and they chain it up and they clock it up and they say, okay, he's got to, you got to figure this out or whatever because he can only hold his breath for so long. And they do this whole thing and then and then he goes, he's underwater for like 20 minutes or whatever, and they just kind of walk away and act like he's dead, right? You know, and you go, I don't even know how you're doing that. The guy legitimately looks like he just drowned to death under there. And, and then he's like, oh, well, what do you do? And they just walk away. It's remarkable. They're just obviously he's not dead, you know, and you go, wow, this is incredible. But Penn, who does the speaking and, and, and says a lot of the stuff and sets a lot of the, the tricks up and, and the magic up and everything, is very outspoken. And, and he, made a, he posted a video uh, some time ago now, and he said this, and he is a professed atheist. In fact, he's a very outspoken atheist in his, in his wording and who he says he is. But he made this statement, and he said, quoting, he said, and I've always said, you know that I don't respect 
people that don't proselytize. So it's like, if you don't share your faith, I don't respect you. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that, well, it's not really worth telling them this is, uh, telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. And atheists who think that people shouldn't proselytize, just leave me alone, keep your religion to yourself. How much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them about it? I mean, if I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, that the truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. This is coming from a professed atheist saying, how much do you have to hate people to not tell them about this salvation you know about? How much do you have to hate the people around you to keep it to yourself? How much do you have to hate the people to say, you know what, it may just be a little awkward if I bring this up right now. That's a strong word, right, coming from somebody. That's a strong statement that he's just basically throwing it at the church going, why don't you, you know, I have no respect for you if you're not gonna proselytize. And I'm like, man, that's incredible. Can I tell you, I'm throwing myself in the same boat, right? Hear me, yes, I'm a pastor and I can get up here and preach and I, you bring anybody in here and I'll preach all day long. No problem whatsoever. You put me in a one-on-one situation where the Holy Spirit's nudging me at Starbucks, all of a sudden I get a little nervous about it. it it's just being real, just being honest. And I don't think I'm the only one, Right? I don't think I'm the only one that feels that. I don't think I'm the only one that, that experiences that or walks through that and says, what do I have to do? How, how, we need to reach out. We need to reach out. You know what? Here's what studies have shown us. Statistics show us that a super high percentage of people will come to church if they're just invited. If they're just invited. We have invite cards sitting out on our, on our welcome table outside that just basically on one side, it talks about, it says this series. And on the other side, it says Easter, April 21st. My heart is to make this as simple as possible for you and for me to say, how do we tell people about Jesus? And maybe the first step is just inviting. Maybe the first step is saying, hey, I'd love for you to come to church with me sometime. What are you doing on this day? What are you doing this Sunday? What are you doing this Sunday? And all of a sudden people go, hey, I can come check it out. And you know what? You have planted a seed. They can come and I promise you, we're gonna preach the word of God. I mean, man alive, right now, I'm just preaching gospel every single week. And I just throw that out there. And if you haven't picked up on it, we're two weeks in uh, and we've preached the gospel two weeks in a row. Uh, this is kind of where we're going for the next six weeks after this, right? Up until Easter, we're preaching the gospel. We're preaching Jesus. We may not have a whole lot to offer, but we can give people Jesus, Amen. Amen. And I feel that God is just stirring in my heart saying, hey, we've got to reach outside of our world. We've got to tell people. There are so many people that need Jesus in this area. There's so many people that need the saving knowledge of Christ. And if we just hold it to ourselves, how much do we hate our neighbors? Man, I just reading that, man, it just, it, it hits me. You know, it goes, golly, I can be better. I need to be better. I need to be better. And it's just that push to say, go, reach people, reach people, tell people about Jesus. At a minimum, invite them to church. Invite them to church. Let them experience Jesus in this setting. And we'll go from there. 
Grace Hill exists as a place to belong, to become like Christ, to be light to the world around us, all for the sake of changed lives, of changed lives. Part of that becoming takes place within the church and being a part of the body, but that being light is what we're mandated and called to do, right? We're to go into all the world, all the world and preach the gospel, right? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he says, go and make disciples. Go and make disciples. We're to call them, call them in, bring them in, and help them to become like Christ. That is our heartbeat here. That is why we do what we do. All for the sake of changed lives. All for the sake of changed lives. Amen? Every head bowed and every eye closed as we wrap up this morning. Father, we thank you, God. Oh, Father, we thank you that you sent your son to die for us. Jesus, you gave your life. You endured more pain. You endured more more, more just physical hurt than any one of us have ever known or endured. And you did it willingly and sacrificially so that we might have salvation, so that your blood could be poured out so that we could receive you, Father. Welcome to the Grace Hill Podcast, a weekly podcast of our Sunday messages driven by our pastor, Michael Norman. Grace Hill exists to bring God's biblical truth to your everyday life. As we begin this week's message, we invite you to open your Bibles and capture what God has in store for you today. 